0: because that's our stated goal in the long term. We want for golf to look like America looks from the standpoint of participation, those of us who work in the game, those who compete in the game, and we're not there. And there's nothing to be ashamed of there, but we want to look like America looks from a gender perspective, from an ethnicity, from an age, from a disability, from a sexual orientation perspective. We want to be reflective of society generally. Welcome, everyone, to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with golf's top influencers, entrepreneurs, innovators,
1: and disruptors about their vision to reimagine, transform, and grow the game. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with World Golf Foundation CEO Steve Mona. Hi there, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. My pleasure, Colin. Look forward to being with you. So, over the first 10 episodes of the podcast, I've spoken to some of the top entrepreneurs that are creating the future of golf, and your name keeps popping up as the person who is most passionately supporting the growth of the game. So, to start us off here, Steve, can you tell us a bit about yourself, along with a brief history of the World Golf Foundation and the mission of your organization?
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. So. Just to give you a a background on my career in golf, it actually spans 37 years, starting at the Northern California Golf Association, where I was tournament director for about two years. From there, I moved to the United States Golf Association, where I was assistant manager of press relations, also for about two years. And then from there, I became the executive director of the Georgia State Golf Association, where I remained for 10 years. And then following my stay at the Georgia State Golf Association, I became the chief executive of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, headquartered in Lawrence, Kansas. And I was there for 14 years and then came here to the World Golf Foundation to become its CEO nine years ago. So when you add all that up, it's 37 years, which seemingly went by in the blink of an eye. In terms of the World Golf Foundation, what it is and what it does, let me just give you a very brief history. The World Golf Foundation was actually conceived and created and developed by Dean Beeman, who was commissioner of the PGA Tour at the time. And Dean's vision was that there Ought to be an organization in golf that would serve to bring the industry together to collaborate on major initiatives that no one organization could take on by itself, either because of the size or the complexity of the subject. And so that was the genesis of the World Golf Foundation that was in the early 1990s. And since that time, the World Golf Foundation has helped to launch three major initiatives that are supported by the broader golf industry. And those include the First Tee, which launched in 1997, the World Golf Hall of Fame, which opened here at our headquarters in St. Augustine, Florida in 1998, and then Golf 2020, which was launched in 2000, And so essentially, the World Golf Foundation is an industry coalition that brings different sectors of the industry together to focus on the biggest and broadest issues confronting the game of golf. That's probably the easiest way to put it
1: that's a great way to start here thanks for that as we expand this conversation i did want to drill down into your we are golf initiative too but let's hold off on that for a second here and and start with these one at a time as far as the initiative so with the first tee as you mentioned launched in 1997 here which you have as the mandate of impacting the lives of young people can you describe the evolution of that and the impact that you've had on golf and getting younger people involved in the game
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the evolution, the first tee started and was focused solely on providing opportunities to be exposed to the game of golf among those who otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to be exposed to the game. So what that meant generally was the first tee was very much an urban focused program. It sought to bring inner city kids primarily to the game because generally speaking, and I hate to generalize here, but it's generally true that... That if you're living in an urban area, uh, particularly an underserved urban area, then you're not going to generally have the ability to be introduced to the game. So that was the genesis of the first tee. But then it began to evolve and it moved from that to ultimately where it is today, which is the first tee is a youth development program that uses golf as a platform to teach life skills. And that should be carefully considered. It is, at its heart, a junior golf development program, but it's also a life skills program. It features what we call the nine core values that we believe young people should be taught. And we think golf is a great vehicle to teach them these nine core values. But those core values carry over into life. And what I like to say is that we're creating the next generation of leaders not just the next generation of golfers. But the first tee in terms of its evolution started very urban, Moved to a more of a suburban, if you will, and even rural uh, focus, and it moved to a program for all kids, not just kids who otherwise wouldn't be introduced to the game. And now it really functions on three different planes, if you will. One is the traditional chapter program, which we have 155 chapters around the United States, and that means a physical location where kids go, they learn the game, they get exposed to the game, and they begin to develop develop as golfers and as leaders as I mentioned. The second piece of the first T is what we call the National Schools Program. And today we're in more than 9,000 elementary schools across the United States. And the first T is part of the physical education curriculum. And what that means in practical terms is in elementary schools, the students are exposed to generally four to six sports a semester where they have anywhere from four weeks or so where a particular sport is introduced, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, volleyball, wrestling, whatever. And golf is now part of that curriculum. And so that is where we've been able to generate very large numbers, obviously, with 9,000 elementary schools. So that's the second area. That's called the National Schools Program. And then the third area is an area where we are taking the first tee to where kids are. Right. And that is specifically focused on boys and girls clubs, YMCAs, et cetera, where the first tee is offered as part of their uh, either after-school or summertime programming. So that's really been how the first tee has expanded over time. And just to give you a sense, Colin, of scale, we reached over 5 million young people last year in 2016, and we established a goal in 2011 that we would reach 10 million young people between 2011 and 2017 and we're on target to do that by the end of this year.
1: Amazing well you just answered the next question I was going to ask you which is the, the type of traction you've managed to get over the last few years and the data that you have on that so that's incredible growth so congratulations with that. Now with the first T, is if my understanding here Steve correct me if I'm wrong that it falls under the umbrella of golf 2020 which we'll ex- expand on in a moment here but that's part of your growth of the game mandate where the first T is also part of the PGA Junior League golf and drive chip and putt, the LPGA and USGA girls golf and other initiatives. Can you expand on that? till we understand that a bit more?
0: Yeah, I think I need to clarify that. Actually, the first tee is a separate entity. It falls under the banner of the World Golf Foundation, but it's a right. separate entity. Those five initiatives you referenced are all initiatives that Golf 2020, acting on behalf of the World Golf Foundation, identified three years ago as initiatives that we sought to promote on behalf of the industry generally. So those five initiatives, just to refresh, are Get Golf Ready, LPGA USGA Girls Golf, The First Tee, Drive Chip and Putt, and PGA Junior League Golf. And we, as Golf 2020, work with the sponsors of those five organizations to provide marketing and other communication materials that we then ask all of our industry partners, of which we have more than 150, to help support through their own communication vehicles. And we're happy to say that in 2015, which was the first year that we did this program, all five of those initiatives achieved record levels of participation. Then in 2016, four of the five achieved record levels, and one was flat with 15 so we, we'd like to think that we help to support participation in those initiatives. So that's the way that works. Now with that, have you found, especially the
1: last couple of years, you've got some great traction and some explosion here on the, on the participation. Have you found kind of harnessing the power of social media has really helped fuel that? Or are there other elements that you see that have helped move that forward? Or is it just the fact you guys have been hammering away at it positively for so long now that it's finally taken hold? Or is it a combination of factors in your mind?
0: I think it's really a combination of everything you just said, Colin. I I would uh, point to two, though, at the top of the list. One is, just as you said, the fact that we've organized this, we have minimized the group of initiatives to that group of five. Those are not the only five initiatives that are occurring in golf, but those are the five that we are helping to promote on behalf of the entire industry. And and to get 150-plus industry organizations to support them as well was significant. But then you also mentioned social media, and I cannot overstate the importance of social media. In fact, now most of our communication efforts begin and end with social media, and that's been an evolution just over the last few years. I don't know where things are going to go in the future, but I would dare say probably in that space. So that's been critically important to us. I do want to talk about Golf 2020 a bit
1: more, but while we're segueing with our conversation with social media here, can you tell us a bit about your We Are Golf initiative? And I know that dovetails into National Golf Day, which I believe was on April 26th this year at uh, Capitol Hill. Can you talk a bit about those initiatives and how
0: they all connect and move things forward for you? Absolutely. So if you look at the uh, efforts of golf 2020, you can really boil them down into three main categories. One are the promotion of the various player development initiatives, and we've talked about that. Two is advocacy on behalf of the game. And and that's what I'm going to come back to, and that's where We Are Golf and Image of the Game, which I wanted to speak to as well, fits in. And then three is, and three is important, and that is we also look at areas where golf doesn't look like America looks because that's our stated goal in the long term. We want for golf to look like America looks from the standpoint of participation, from the standpoint of those of us who work in the game, from the standpoint of those who compete. In the game. And we're not there. And there's nothing to be ashamed of there. But we want to look like America looks from a gender perspective, from an ethnicity perspective, from an age perspective. From a disability perspective, from a sexual orientation perspective, we want to be reflective of society generally. So, the areas in which we're not at those levels, we focus on specifically. But I'll set that aside for a minute and come back to your question. So, We Are Golf is the industry's government relations initiative. And what we found, and this dates back to 2008, 2009, was that the golf industry didn't have a collective voice in Washington, D.C., uh, whereas almost every single industry and profession you you can think of does have a collective voice. Now, that's not to say that there weren't and aren't certain industry organizations that individually have efforts in Washington, and that's great, and those are efforts that inure back to the benefit of those organizations specifically, but generally golf didn't have a presence. And we said, we need to change that. So that's where We Are Golf was originated, and it has been around now since we actually launched it in 2009 and had our first National Golf Day, actually, in 2008 before We Are Golf was formally launched. But the whole premise behind We Are Golf is to give golf a collective voice in front of three bodies in Washington. One is the Congress. Two is the administration, specifically the White House. And three are the various agencies with which golf has a close and natural interface. And specifically, the best example I could give is the Environmental Protection Agency because so many of our issues relate to the environment. So, since that time, we have engaged a lobby firm. So, we retain a lobby firm on a part-time basis. Their name is Forbes Tate Partners. They do excellent work for us. And then we, as those who work in the game and leaders in the game, converge upon Washington in a very visible way on National Golf Day, but also at various other times during the year. And what we're trying to accomplish, essentially, is very simple. We want to make sure that laws and regulations that have impact on golf in whatever way they might have the voice of golf considered before they are promulgated, either into law or regulation. And we've been fairly successful in our tenure so far at achieving that. So that is We Are Golf in a Nutshell.
1: Now, if I understand this correctly, your efforts back in April, or were not just exclusive to Washington, even though that's where you were boots on the ground there. That across America, I know, for example, you with We Are Golf, you partnered with Top Golf, and we're offering free five-minute lessons at their 27 locations. And I'm sure there were some other initiatives too. So it just wasn't what was happening in Washington that day, and also through social media, you guys were promoting us through the hashtag #GrowGolf, I believe it was also with this, and you were certainly very active that particular day across the country.
0: Yeah, that's right. Thanks for mentioning that, Colin. And besides the actual physical day in Washington, there's much more to it. In fact, we were trending on Twitter that day, which is pretty significant for one event in Washington, D.C. But yes, the, the social media element and the with various entities such as Tom Golf, you mentioned, Billy Casper Golf also promoted it, a number of other organizations did as well. So it had very much of a national appeal to it, shall I say. Thanks for that. And I I want to get back to one of
1: your earlier comments. You want golf to look like America. That really encapsulates your vision. I think people will get that immediately. The connectivity is very simple and clear. So with that, it reminds me of one of the reoccurring themes we're having here with guests on the podcast, and that is making golf more inclusive, more welcoming from people I know that you're working with all the time, Alisa Godet, for example, with Women's Golf Day. I know on, on the task forces that you have with Chris Hart and also with ron powers with top golf and peter kratzios this notion of inclusivity you're not just talking the talk you guys are walking the walk on this i can see that with the not only the task force but the advisory boards you have that you do have a women's task force a diversity task force and a millennial task force even those three could you drill down into those a bit more and, and what the plans are of what you can tell us what do you plan to achieve with that in the near future and long term
0: Absolutely. So in the case of all those task forces, so you mentioned diversity, you mentioned women's, you mentioned millennials specifically. Those are groups of people who are committed to that particular cause and who want to affect change and specifically move those areas more in alignment with what America looks like generally. So the efforts in those areas have primarily been around general participation in the game. For instance, you take women as an example. Women are 50 plus percent of the U.S. population, but 24 percent of the golf population. Right. So how do we move closer to the 50 plus percent? You look at minorities, which we define as African-American, Asian-American, and Latino, and they're about 37 percent of the U.S. population and growing every day, by the way, but about 20 percent of the golf population. So that's really at the core of everything that we're doing. But on top of that, we're also looking at it from the perspective of the golf industry itself and particularly in the area of diversity. The industry, if you look across it and particularly at the leadership level, and I'm an example of that, doesn't look like America looks. It skews heavily male and heavily Caucasian. And there are various right. reasons for that. And that's there's it's not everyone, anyone's fault per se. It just is where it is. But we are very intentional now about creating opportunities opportunities for people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have looked at golf as a career path to be exposed to opportunities within golf. And we think ultimately over time, we will begin to be more reflective of America. One specific example I'd like to use that amplifies this is the American Junior Golf Association has an intern program. You might be familiar with this, but each year the AJGA uh, employs about 90 interns who go around and run the various AJGA tournaments all summer and And many, many, many of those interns wind up at a later date either working for the AJGA itself and or for other organizations in golf. And it is without question the number one training ground for jobs in golf. So when we talk about, so how do we get the golf industry itself to look more like America? Well, you've got to go to the beginning of the stream, so to speak, and that's the AJGA program in part. So that's just one specific example on the ground on how we're trying to influence change.
1: So that was a great response. Thanks for that. So on this note, Steve, could you tell us a bit more about your association with Women's Golf Day as one of the initiatives? There's probably a broad spectrum of initiatives you have of growing the women's game, but could you talk to us about your involvement and support with Women's Golf Day?
0: Sure. So when uh, Elisa first contacted me and it's before she launched it, she laid out the vision for me. And I said, this is something that we need to get behind because just as an aside, Colin, I should say that one of the things that we like to do is to help support initiatives of other individuals and entities. By no means do we feel like we have to do everything ourselves, And so this was a classic case of a person taking on responsibility for launching what ended up becoming a worldwide movement, if you will. That over two years has grown tremendously. And so what we thought we could do would be to help give it credibility, one, by associating with it. And I think by virtue of the fact of our associating with certain activities or events, it gives it a certain amount of credibility. But two, through our communication channels to help to promote and publicize it. And so that's really the extent of what we've done with Women's Golf Day. Now, that really leads to a broader subject, which is women's golf generally and without getting into all the detail we've now been working with our women's task force for about 5 years now and our main effort has been our golf for her forher.com website which we tout as the community for those who aspire to play and who play the game of golf. I should say those women who aspire to play and who play the game of golf. And we've set it up much like a portal. The analogy I use is it's a little bit like the Atlanta airport. You rarely go to Atlanta to stay, to stop, but you go through Atlanta to get to where you want to get. And it's very similar to our golferherd.com website. That's not generally your final point, but you get directed to where you want to go. So whether it's LPGA, USGA girls, or the first tee as it relates to girls, or the AJGA, whatever the case might be, the Executive Women's Golf Association is probably the best example. You get directed to that particular organization or program. So I cannot underemphasize the the importance of the development of women's golf and the focus that we have on it today. And just as an aside, we're in the process right now with our Women's Task Force of developing a new strategic plan for the next several years. So stay tuned for that. I think you'll see some exciting news coming out of that in the months to come. We'll definitely be looking forward to seeing that, Steve. So with your organization, with the
1: World Golf Foundation,
0: I'm very interested
1: to learn... Is my background, not only as a, as an architect and sport experience designer, but I'm very interested in the culture of businesses, not only at the startup level, but even at the more mature level that you guys are at there. Of course, your mandate of promoting the growth of the game and fostering golf's diversity and ensuring the vitality of the game. I'm very interested to hear as far as the makeup of the staff at World Golf Foundation. Are you mirroring this inclusive, welcoming environment and this diversity that, that you've been talking about with the participation in golf? Is that reflect where you want it to be within your organization right now?
0: Yeah, I appreciate you asking that, Colin, because we do work very hard at that ourselves because we believe if we're going to be the mouthpiece and the champions for these efforts, then we need to model that ourselves. And I will tell you with respect to our diversity efforts on behalf of the industry, and there really are three different efforts underway We are, to the extent we can, trying to be the models of diversity within the staff level. So if you look, we're divided into essentially the World Golf Hall of Fame, which is one of our divisions, and the first tee is another of our divisions, and then Golf 2020 is the third. That's very small from a staff perspective. And then we have what we call support services services which is our human resources, our finance, and our legal functions, which support all the different divisions. But I can tell you from a gender perspective, we actually outdo America a little bit. We're more than 50%. And from an ethnicity perspective, we are very close to that 37% number. In fact, that the first T were there, the other two divisions were not. But if you total it all up, we're probably within, I'd say, five to seven percentage points. So I would dare say, with all humility, if you took any golf organization and did an assessment of its overall diversity, If we're not at the top of the list, we'd have to be very close in terms of percentages relative to our overall staff. And we work very hard at that and take it very seriously. And we are not exactly in an area, St. Augustine, Florida, where there's a lot of diversity just native to the area. We have to work at it.
1: I'm very pleased to hear that you guys are working at that and do bake that into the culture that you have there. So another thing I wanted to talk about, the fact you are the World Golf Foundation. You're not the U.S. Golf Foundation. So you do have an international reach. I can see here with some of your partners here with the European Tour and the RNA besides uh, who you have in the in the U.S. Can you talk a bit about Uh, your involvement internationally here and i'm also interested kind of a two-part question interested to hear the partnerships that you've cultivated and the value of those because a lot of the well the guests that we have on they wouldn't be where they are if they didn't have those partnerships to help accelerate them forward so can you touch on those two things for us
0: Absolutely. And when you mean partnerships, are you talking in an international context or just in a general sense?
1: You could go for both. I know I kind of mashed that up as a two-part question, but I'm interested to hear what you guys are doing internationally and let's say with your partnerships with the European tour and the RNA and then overall just the partnerships and how that's really helping as ambassadors to amplify your message.
0: Okay, well, let's start with the international piece. And candidly, that's an area that part of that is just baked into our organization. So the World Golf Hall of Fame is a global enterprise. It's based here in St. Augustine, Florida, but it has members from all over the world. Every single induction ceremony, we have inductees who are from outside of the United States. So that's just part of the culture of the World Golf Hall of Fame. The First T has a handful of international chapters. We have been looking at that for a long period of time. We haven't made a significant strategic effort to expand globally. We take the attitude if if we receive inquiries from around the world, which we do, by the way, we will work with the governing bodies in those countries to either create a First T chapter if that's the best solution, but usually the best solution is just to Use that particular country's own culture and own structure to create something similar to a first tee without having to call it that. So that's still a bit in progress. But the biggest area that we work in globally is with governing bodies and other coalitions that are seeking to do in their country what we've been doing in the United States for a number of years from a coalition standpoint around whether it be player development or it be around advocacy, public and media relations, etc., And so I spend a fair amount of my time working with other bodies. So, for example, next week I'm going to the Open Championship and I have several meetings with different European groups where we will be talking specifically about the issues we're facing in the United States, how we've been dealing with them, how we've organized our golf community here, how we've raised money, how we've worked with the media, how we've worked with our government, etc. So that's more the approach that we take, Colin. We're certainly not in the business of colonizing the world. That is not our approach. It's more consultative. It's basically an approach of, hey, we've been at this for a while here. Here's what's worked. Here's what hasn't worked. This is what happens in our culture in America. Not sure if your culture is the same, but to the extent that you can learn something from this, we're happy to help. So that's the approach on a global basis generally.
1: Sounds like you're acting more in a facilitation role then, rather than trying to scale this thing up so you own the, uh, the global market on the future of golf. Well, as, as you said, because every culture is different, that is the way you want to approach this because it's like groups like Starbucks have found, you can't sell the same latte everywhere that you have to tweak that to the cultural context of each region.
0: Then as it relates to partnerships, the, the simple answer to that question is we wouldn't exist if it weren't for partnerships. Right. Because everything we do is coalition-based. What I like to say, this is a joke. It's not meant to be literal, but it's, uh, but there's some truth to it. We govern by the power not vested in us, meaning that we don't have any influence over any of the organizations that are part of our coalition. I can't call up Mike Davis at the USGA or Pete Bavakwa at the PGA of America or Martin Slumbers at the RNA and say, hey, would you do this? I can suggest things, and working in groups, we do, and we are able to create consensus around particular efforts and initiatives. And so the way that we create accountability among all these different organizations over which we have no authority is twofold. One is through a consensus process. So that doesn't mean that everybody agrees on everything all the time, but what it does mean is when we create a direction or agree on some sort of strategy. There's always a broad consensus process that accompanies that. So that's number one. And number two, the way we drive specific accountability is through communication and follow-up. Now, it might seem a little bit funny or trite, but it's not. We will have conference calls. We will have meetings. We will have any number of consensus processes and we invariably follow those up with just a quick summation of what was agreed to. Then over a period of time, we check back in to see what the progress is. Now, in most cases, we have to drive that, but not in every case do we drive it. Those task forces you spoke about before. The Millennial Task Force is probably the best example of that, where that group, they are functioning on their own. They have their own calls. They create their own agendas. We provide a small budget for them to do certain things. Like, for instance, right now, they're at the American Century Championship in Lake Tahoe doing some filming there. But that's how we do things here. So without partnerships, we have nothing. I guess that's the easiest way to put it.
1: It sounds like co-creating is a good term to use of how you uh, collaborate and gain consensus and move things forward. And on that note, I see you have a partnership with the masters is that primarily to do with the drive chip and putt initiative and with that who actually spawned that idea is that something that came from you or from outside or because i know what culminates with the event at the masters of the finals can you quickly touch on that a bit and how that partnership works
0: Sure. So the relationship with the Masters actually is broader than um, just drive, chip, and Put. The Masters has a seat on our board of directors. Will Jones is general manager. is the individual who occupies that role. Number two, the Masters is one of the founding organizations of the First Tee and makes a sizable annual contribution to the first tee. And the Masters is also um, on the board of Golf 2020. So the Masters has its fingerprints throughout our organization. As it relates to drive, chip, and putt, that actually, that idea originated with the Masters and with Billy Payne, its chairman. And he had the idea. He, He went to the USGA and to the PGA of America, and they both agreed to help support it. Through various means, specifically in the case of the PGA, the PGA of America really runs all the various qualifying events that occur throughout the summer months leading up to the national finals, which, as you pointed out, occur at Augusta National the Sunday prior to the Masters. But that very much was something that was spawned by the Masters, underwritten in large measure by the Masters, and obviously promoted very heavily the week of the Masters as well. Yes. And one
1: last comment on that. So how many years has the drive, chip, and putt been in existence? And this year, how many young golfers did you have participating at that grassroots qualifying level?
0: So this is year three for drive, chip, and putt. So next April will be the fourth national finals, if you will. You have to keep in mind that the national finals are somewhat arrears to the actual qualifying events because the qualifying events occur in the summer months. So generally June, July, August, and then the national finals are the following April. So the sequence is a little bit unique. The number of golfers or participants is not tracked or therefore announced, but I can tell you that... This year, there are 332 qualifying events throughout the year or the summer months, and that actually includes the national finals next April. So you could probably do some quick math, and you probably would discern that you're probably somewhere, my guess is 30 to 45,000 participants throughout the whole year. But again, that's just an estimation, and that's not a scientific number. But more importantly, it creates a great focal point for the game, and it actually gives golf something that other sports have long had. If you consider in U.S. football, the pass, punt, and kick competition's been going on for a long period of time. This is generally golf's version of that. So anything we can do to bring young people to the game in a format that's fun, it's competitive. Don't get me wrong. If you look at those kids that make it to Augusta every year, they are very, 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 very good for their age. (laughs) But— but there are plenty of kids who are, in, you know, you, you never see that are in those local qualifiers or the subregionals or the regionals. There's actually three sets of qualifiers. You know, some of those kids are pretty new to the game, so it, it's a great opportunity for them to get out and experience golf. I'm
1: very curious. I'm sure you're not able to track this, but I'm curious if there's a trickle up effect where kids that have never played before or families that have never been involved in golf at all, that if the kids get involved at that level, that then the parents are then inclined to put a golf club in their hand, whether it's go to top golf or actually get out there and play around a round of golf. Very curious to see if there's any correlation between that. There's some people that are certainly getting involved in that level too that have never thought of playing the game because their kids are now doing it.
0: No question. I mean, anecdotally, we're well aware of that, and and that happens particularly in communities where golf's not part of the culture. We see that a lot in the Hispanic or Latino community. And again, I, I hate to generalize, but a lot of kids, young junior players, that golf was never part of the family culture. It just wasn't something you played. You didn't even think it was something that you could play. But the kids get introduced to it. The parents, who are great parents, want their kids to have as much opportunity as they can possibly have. They see the value in that. Their kids talk about the game. The parents see that this could be an opportunity to spend more time with their kids playing the game, and so they migrate toward it as well. So there's clearly that piece going on, no doubt about it.
1: And quickly, just a couple more questions before I let you go here, Steve. What have you found with the barriers that we we talk about every day, and I'm sure you've talked about it every day for more than a decade, if not longer now, those barriers to entry with golf between it takes a long time, it's very expensive as far as accessibility also and the intimidation factor, especially on cost with families that are or challenged financially. How are you breaking that down to make it easier for them to get involved in the game?
0: So if you look at most of the programs that exist, the the entry-level programs, there are ways to mitigate the whole cost issue. So you take First Tee, for instance. You can get clubs at a First Tee facility. Most First Tee facilities have an overabundance of clubs, and they have professionals who can cut clubs down and fit kids properly for clubs, so they're not wielding a club that's twice the size of what they should be using. So that's one thing, bags, golf balls themselves. So in that particular program, that issue basically goes away. The issue of signing up for the First Tee program itself, most First Tee chapters have scholarship programs Programs available where if you have financial need, you can apply, and essentially your young daughter or son can receive a scholarship to participate in the First Tee. At a lot of First Tee chapters, there's transportation involved. If a lot, I didn't mention this earlier, but the First Tee has relationships with 1,200 golf courses around the United States. So what happens is at a First Tee facility, not all of those are regulation facilities. It might be a driving range in three holes or something of that nature, and so. Uh, young kid pretty rapidly can outgrow that. And so where do they go? So there's 1,200 relationships with different golf courses where they can go and play on a regulation course. And in a lot of cases, the first tee will provide transportation. So what I like to say, Colin, is if someone expresses interest in the game at a beginner level, particularly in these youth programs, but even in Get Golf Ready for that matter, the issue of equipment can be mitigated pretty easily, actually, at least to get started. So um, I'm not here to say that those are not real issues that cost, time, difficulty, the game are not issues, but we feel like we've got in place pretty good efforts to help to mitigate those. Well, thank you for that. Before I let you go here,
1: I'm going to bring up my crystal ball here and hand it over to you. I'm very interested to hear, especially through the lens through which you see the future of golf, where do you see things being in, let's say, 20 years from now? And this could be pragmatic to way out there. I'm just Here's your chance. Where do you think golf will be in 20 years from now or where would you like it to be?
0: Well, I think first, from the composition of the game, I do think it's going to look more like America looks, no question about it. And here's why I say this. Just look at junior golf today. In 2016, we had another year of growth in junior golf. We've grown now 25% over a five-year period of time. But more importantly, 33% of junior golfers today are girls, and 27% are minorities, so the face of golf is going to change. So 20 years from now, if you took a snapshot of golf generally, what however you would do that, it's going to look more diverse than it does today. That's number one. Number two, I think you're going to see greater use of technology. Not so much in the sticks and balls piece, because there, obviously there are limits to how far that can go. But I think in terms of how you experience the game and how it interrelates with your lifestyle generally, you will see technology become more pronounced in golf. And whether that's through how you book a tee time, how you get an update on course conditions, all the way up to when you show up at the golf course and you walk into the pro shop or the starter, how does that all feel and relate? I think you'll see greater technology. I also think you'll see it in motorized golf carts. I know that there are some efforts underway right now to bring technology to that. And I'm not just talking about layouts of the course and yardages from different places, but bringing the outside world into the experience as appropriate, because part of why we go out to play golf is to get away from the outside world. So I understand that. But technology generally will be bigger. And I think at a competitive level, golfers are going to continue to move toward resembling more great athletes who have chosen to play golf versus highly skilled individuals who probably could only play golf. And all you need to do is look at the Dustin Johnsons and the Brooks Kepkas on the PGA Tour, et cetera, and then the Suzanne Pettersons. And others like that on the uh, LPGA tour. I think you're going to continue to see these great athletes playing golf. And I think on that basis, some of the scoring averages and driving distance and those sorts of things will continue to be under assault. And I think that will actually be good for the game because just imagine if Michael Jordan, who's a pretty good golfer, put all of that effort and athletic ability behind golf, or LeBron James. You can name any number of people. Could you imagine a 6'6", Michael Jordan, or a 6'8", LeBron James with all the athleticism they have playing golf? It's kind of a scary thought, but but I think we're going to see that in 20 years. I really do. And that relates to a couple things. One, golf being exposed to these great athletes at a time where they might choose to pursue it. And then secondly, the face of golf changing where people could see themselves part of it. And that's a big part, too, because I think a lot of people who might be able to maybe could have pursued golf just don't because they don't see themselves part of the game. But I think that'll change, too. So that's generally how I see it in 20 years, Colin that's wow that's a great answer
1: (laughs) thank you for your insights with that one note on that you touched on is how the game is actually using technology and embedding that in on all levels through recreational professional level playing and even how the audience both live and broadcast experience it it's we've been having conversations and are going to have a guest on that's working within virtual reality and augmented reality mixed reality and those are just like in the general public they're just scratching the surface on how to harness the power of that and the value of that. So I think that's very exciting also to see where that goes as far as those overlays within a traditional golf format too.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that Colin. I didn't even get into that at all. I only stayed at the participation level, but probably the advances from a technology standpoint and the whole fan experience are going to even be greater than what I just described on the participation side.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's where, as you know also, Steve, that's where there's an opportunity for a great growth in the game and the connectivity with the greater populace. And the golf audience in the industry is already big, but I'm sure you see it too, that if you can channel or access and harness even a small portion of the non-golf public, whether it's women, minorities, and everybody that's non-golfers, there's a huge opportunity for the health of the game in the future.
0: Well, that's a great point. And even if you just if you just limit it to people who are fans of the game. That's about 3x as many people as who play the game. Yes. So just think about that. And and look, I'd like to touch everybody in society, but I'll just take people who are fans of the game. If we can convert even 25% of them into participants, look at what that does for the game. So we here here's the thing Colin not to digress here but golf doesn't have an attraction problem at all. We have no really no problem attracting people to the game either to try it as a participant but certainly to engage with it as a fan. Our challenge and we're trying to address it obviously is converting Interest into trial and then trial into commitment. And it's a three-step process. And every step of the way, there's complexities associated with it. But we're blessed as a sport that we have lots of people who engage with us as fans and we have lots of people who are interested in it. We just have to move them along that continuum.
1: Sounds like you are facing what almost every business faces, and that is increasing the diameter of that customer acquisition funnel and then getting them through and and having the stickiness there so you have less churn and getting people more engaged in the game. So, and I think you guys are, well, I know you guys are certainly on the right track here and the initiatives and the energy and the passion that you're showing here is commendable. So before I let you go here, Steve, here's your chance to let our listeners know how they can take a look themselves at what you're doing. So can you let people know how they can see what's going on with the World Golf Foundation Foundation, Golf 2020, the first T
0: in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Yeah. So without without making this sound like an alphabet soup of websites, uh, right. there really are two that I think if your listeners went to, they could navigate every place else they need to get. And this would give them the most holistic overview and would also give them the the widest view of what's going on. So I would start off with golf2020.com. So I think that's pretty straightforward. Right. And then wearegolf.org. And if they could get on one or both of those, those are both pretty intuitive. They could take you pretty much wherever you want to go into the different World Golf Foundation organizations and outside to the various initiatives we were talking about. And without much effort, I think they could find out pretty much whatever they wanted to discern. And then the last one I have to say for our women and girls who are listening, hopefully there's a lot of them. Please go to golf for her f o r dot com. It is the nexus point for girls and women who either play the game or who are interested in the game, and it, it's a great site. And commend that to our young girls and women who might be listening. That's great. And I will
1: post links to all three of those in our episode show notes to make it easy for people to click through. And the fourth one I will add, of course, is the worldgolffoundation.org link also, which I know you can kind of drill down to all the other things you talked about. So that's great stuff. So Steve... Thank you ever so much for being the guest on the Mod Golf podcast today. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a ton, and I'm sure our listeners have too. And thank you again for your passion and your support for growing the game of golf. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again down the road and get more updates on what you're building with the World Golf Foundation.
0: Well, thank you, Colin, for having me. And I'd be happy to come back at any time. And I appreciate your support for what we're trying to do as well. And I wish you the best in your venture as well. Thank you very much. All right, Steve. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too, Colin. I hope you enjoyed
1: my conversation with World Golf Foundation CEO, Steve Mona. To learn more about the World Golf Foundation, go to our website, modgolf.fireside.fm, where you'll find links to the topics and content we covered in this episode. So this episode wraps up season one of the Mod Golf Podcast. So we're going to take a short break for the rest of the summer before we launch season two starting in mid-September. So I want to thank all my guests for the first 12 episodes we've had for the Mod Golf Podcast. Without them, we wouldn't have these amazing stories to tell about the future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mod Golf Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I look forward to seeing you again in early September, where we'll have more stories about the innovators and influencers creating the future of golf.